You know, one of the things that I believe all of us realize is that a lot of us, I'm going to dare and say most of us do not, do not like to. I like to wait. We're super impatient, aren't we? I'm going to confess, your pastor has very little patience. I know, I know it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, but I have no patience. When people just talk and talk, in the back of my mind, please don't judge me. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, get to the point. What is the point? Except for my wife, of course. I'm very patient with her. She can speak and speak all she wants. If I get behind the wheel, and I do every day, my wife always says, remember, be patient. I'm at a red light. As soon as it turns green, I don't understand why people don't go. I ask them out loud. They don't hear me. But what shape, what color of green do you want it? You don't have to count one, Mississippi. Just go. If I'm in the parking lot, one last. I'm just confessing, just letting it all out. If I'm in the parking lot and I want to take a parking space and I see a person that has his reverse lights on and they're just there, oh, wow. We want your space. Hurry up. But we're all impatient. Think about it. We're really impatient. I remember the first time the microwave came out. Anybody remember that? Nobody's as old as I am? When the microwave first came out, we were super excited. We don't have to wait to have our dinner cooked in the oven. In a matter of two minutes, we can have dinner served. But now, now we stand in front of the microwave, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, don't we? Amazon, we want next day delivery. We want same day delivery. We're going to get to the point where we're going to want our things delivered even before we ordered our things. Trust me, we're getting to that point. I know now that some of you guys, younger guys, are using a lingo that makes no sense. Here's what I mean. If you say it's been a minute, you refer to it as being a long time. Dude, I haven't seen you, man. It's been a minute. doesn't make sense. But it tells us, it tells us how impatient we've become. If you want to talk about patience, read about the people in the Bible. Abraham, 99 years he had to wait before he had his son. David. 40 years, 30 to 40 years before he became the anointed king of Israel. But talk about patience. What if you had to wait 4,000 years? See, the people of the Old Testament had to wait 4,000 years before Messiah came. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that there would be a Messiah, one who would crush the serpent's head. 4,000 years had to elapse before that came. And here we are waiting over 2,000 years for Messiah to come back again. Today we continue our series that we've entitled Christ in the Old Testament. And let me say this again. Our prayer is that we can see how in the Old Testament, since the very beginning, as a matter of fact, from beginning to end, Christ is glorified. So we can understand what Jesus came to do. 
And that is to save a broken, desperate, sinful people. The Bible is a story of redemption. It's a story of rescue. Again, Jesus came to rescue an unworthy, hopeless, sinful people to a holy, perfect God. So today we're going to look at Numbers chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, please prepare yourself as we're going to jump into those verses. Numbers chapter 21. But before we jump into the verses today, I want to give us a little bit of context so we can understand the story that we're about to read in the book of Numbers that was written by Moses. So I think you guys know the story in Exodus. The people of God, the Israelite people, the chosen people, had been enslaved for 430 years, enslaved to the Egyptians. For 430 years, they've been wanting to be rescued. God had promised their forefathers, Abraham, that there was a land, and they're waiting for that promised land. 430 years. And I think you've heard the story. God chooses a prophet. His name is Moses. And God tells Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to release my people. So Moses go, goes. Pharaoh says yes. And he changes his mind. He says no, yes, no, yes, no. Ten times. And then God sends the ten plagues. We'll see that next week. Don't miss it. So he sends the ten plagues. And, and Pharaoh says, okay, okay, go, go, go. And literally... Maybe four days that the people have now been rescued. They're no longer enslaved. Literally, they're walking out, and they see the Red Sea in front of them. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and says, you know what? What have I done? I want these people back. They're my slaves. So he goes after them. And literally, from that moment, and as we read through most of Exodus, as the people are through the, going through the wilderness, they complain. Complain, complain, complain. Complain. Let me give you an example. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. The people come to Moses and they ask this. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is that what you're doing, Moses? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Now they're going to lie. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They're no, they haven't been wanting to serve the Egyptians for 430 years, and now they're changing the whole story. Watch, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Complain after complain after complain for 40 years. So now let's pick up the story. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. If you have your Bibles with you. Follow along with me. We are going to have the verses on the screen behind me. But I do encourage you to bring your Bible so you can take notes. So you can discuss in your small group or later on after you leave today. And here's what Moses writes. Verse 4, Numbers chapter 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. Edom, I'm sorry. And the people became impatient on the way. Let me tell you what's going on. It's been 40 years since the people have left of being enslaved in Egypt. 40 years. They're almost to the promised land. These are the grandchildren, the sons of the people who originally left Egypt. They're almost there. They can see it. But they have to cross this land of Edom. So Moses sends 
some of the spies, some of his representatives to talk to the Edomites and say, hey, can we just pass your land? We're almost there. We won't go anywhere. We promise we'll stay on I-35 South. We won't go anywhere. I promise. And the people of Edom said, no. So they come back. Moses tells his people and they complain. They've got to go all the way down through the Red Sea up to the promised land. And they're thinking to themselves, I, we are there. And now it's going to take us longer. So they complain. Here's what I want us to do for the remainder of our time. Here's how I want us to exposit, how to outline the rest of the verses. If you have your Bibles with you, that's why I say bring your Bibles. Take notes. I think this is going to help you understand when you're reading your sermon, I mean in your sermon groups or when you're reading the Bible by yourself. Here's what, how I want us to break down the remainder of the verses. So we're going to look at four things. In verse 5, in your margins, put sin, the sin. It'll help you. And then we're going to look at the penalty. So right next to verse 6, put penalty. And we'll exposit that. We'll explain that more. Then verse 7, the response, and the remaining two verses we're going to look at today, the remedy, those are going to be verses 8 and 9. Four things, the sin, the penalty, the response, the remedy. Got them? All right, let's begin. Verse 5, the sin. Let's look at the sin, the sin of the Israelite people. It says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why? Why have you brought us up? Out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. Sound familiar? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe, we hate, we despise this worthless food. Just like their forefathers. Just like the people they had before them. Forty years before, they were complaining. But notice, they're asking Moses these questions. Why? Food, water, wakalas, why? But they're opposing God. They're complaining ultimately against God. They're being ungrateful. But this doesn't make any sense. Did you notice? They're saying, we have no food. We have no water. The food is horrible. Wait, 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 wait. If you have no food and no water, then how can you complain that the food is horrible? And see, God for 40 years had been providing for them. For 40 years, manna from heaven. We are told that there's a, a cloud that leads them during the day, a pillar during the night. And yet, they're complaining. See, what's happening here, church, is that they are complaining because they don't get what they want. But God has always provided to them what they need. But they're saying, nah, it's not good enough. They were being ungrateful. Have things changed much? The sin that we see there, it's the same sin that we have now. This is a sin. Their sin, our sin, was a dissatisfaction of God's provisions and his promises. God had always provided for them what they needed. And he was keeping their promises, but they, his promises, but they did not trust him. It's the same today, church. We are the richest, we are the richest nation in the world, but yet we complain. We don't have enough. 
Some people don't have a roof over their house. Running water. Maybe, maybe we should learn from the Israelite people and be more grateful. Because God will always give you what you need. Read Matthew 6. But he won't give you what you want. And when we don't get what we want, just like these people in the desert, we oppose God. We complain. You know what else? We have to understand, and I'm so guilty of this. We have to understand that God will always keep his promises. Always. And as I look back in my life, I know that God has always been there. I know that God will always be there. Always. And so we need to realize that truth. And they did not realize the fact that God provides. The fact that God is a God of promises. So that was their sin. And so they needed their hearts to be changed. Church, I think we need our hearts to be changed as well. I love what one commentator says. He says this, when a person's heart is determined on rebellion, just like they were back then, and affected by discontent, even the best, listen to this, even the best gifts from the Lord can lose their savor. Nothing will fully satisfy until the heart is made right. We should have a heart of gratitude, not a heart of just complaint and ungratefulness. Let's turn now to the penalty. Verse 6, the penalty. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. That word serpent in Hebrew is nahash. It's a type of, a type of serpent, a very venomous serpent. And now they weren't serpents that were on fire. What Moses was trying to describe, I believe it, is that once they got bitten, it felt like a burning sensation, like their leg or wherever they got bitten was on fire. That's what he meant. But why do you think God sent the penalty as a serpent? Why a serpent? Do you remember back when we first started this series in Genesis 3.15, what the serpent represented? The serpent represented the fall. The serpent was a vessel that Satan did to deceive Adam and Eve. And through the serpent, the fall came to this world. Sin entered this world. The curse entered this world. See, the venom, I believe, the venom of sin entered through one man and spread to mankind. The venom of sin entered through the disobedience of Adam. And spread through all of us. Every single one of us has the venom of sin. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Church, all of us are polluted with the venom. The sin of the fall. The deception. Paul says this in Romans 3.23. For all, every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And you know what the penalty for sin is? Death. The penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin, as Paul writes, is death. Romans 6.23. We all deserve to die. 
because of the venom, the sin we have in our blood. They sinned. Their penalty was death. Death by the serpent. Verse 6 again. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And the outcome was that many, thousands maybe, died. The sin, the penalty, the response. Verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray, Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prays for the people. Picture this for a moment. Could you imagine? Could you imagine how they were panicking, how, how scared they must have felt? They were just desperate, yelling. Could you imagine if you're living back then, if you saw your family members just dying because they had been bitten by the serpent, you feeling helpless, not knowing what to do. That's what they were going through. And how do they respond? The response is twofold. They repent and they ask Moses to intercede. But I noticed something as I was reading. When they first started complaining in verse 5, they complained against God. They went to Moses, but they were complaining against God. We don't like this food. We don't have this food. Made no sense. They were muy, muy. Se creían mucho. Hey, God, no me gusta, right? But now notice, now, they come to Moses, not to God. No que no, chiquitos. Now they're scared, right? Because of their sin, God sends a fiery serpent, and now they're like, oh, no, no, no. Moses, you, 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 you protect us. You intercede for us. And so Moses does what the people ask him to do. He prays. But they're in such desperation. They're in such panic that they repent. Did you catch that? That's why they repented. See, they had sinned before, but I believe this is the first time they actually confessed and realized what they had done, that they had sinned. Why do you think that is? Because in their desperation, they needed salvation. They had nothing else to do. They had nowhere else to go. The only hope was for Moses to do something. So they confessed and repented, and they asked Moses to pray for them. As I look and read this story, things haven't changed either much now. I hear story upon story that when a person hits rock bottom, when they're desperate, then they turn to God. When they're ill, when there's such desperation that they've tried everything else, if everything is hopeless, they turn to the only one who will give them hope. When their finances are gone, now they need help. Then they repent. When marriages are broken, now I need you, God. I believe it was the same thing then. They were in desperation, so they confessed. They sought out salvation. But like I mentioned, they also intercede. They go to Moses Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have sinned against the Lord and against you. Pray, pray Moses to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed. But watch. First they were coming to Moses and saying, Moses, tell God to give us food. 
And now they're asking something totally different. Moses, please tell God to take away these serpents. Boy, have the tables changed. In their desperation, again, they did whatever it took for salvation. And so they turned to Moses. He was the one who interceded for them. But church, let me say this. Moses was just a foreshadowing of the one who will always intercede for us. I need to mention this because there's a lot of false teaching out there that say that you need to come to certain saints, certain people. Those are the people that intercede. No. The Bible teaches there's only one who intercedes, and that is Christ Jesus, who is still interceding for us now. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, praise God who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you and for me, for all believers. He also writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God. And there is one mediator, one, one between God and man. Who is that? The man, Christ Jesus, period. And so Moses was interceding as a foreshadowing of what's to come for you and for me, for the church. The sin, the penalty, now the response, and now the remedy. Verses 8 through 9. And the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. That word see in Hebrew is ra'ah, which is, which is a look of belief, a look of understanding. Verse 9, so Moses did as he was instructed by God, and he made a brown serpent and set it on a pole, on a banner. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look with a look of faith at the bronze serpent and live. But God doesn't respond to his people by taking away the snakes. That's what the people wanted. God responds to his people by giving them salvation, what they needed. God provided them the antidote. Which is salvation. The antidote from the snake's venom was to just look up. Look up at the bronze serpent that Moses had created and they would live. That was their only hope. That was their only cure. That was the only way they could be saved. No other way. 1600 years later, church, we read in the Gospel of John that there was this this teacher, this rabbi by the name of Nicodemus. And he wants to set an appointment with Jesus. And he asks if he could meet Jesus in the night because he probably didn't want to be recognized. And, and you can imagine there was crowds of people always following Jesus. So they meet at night. And Nicodemus tells Jesus, I know, I know you've been sent by God because of all these miracles. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, look, the only way you can inherit the only way you can understand the kingdom of God is that you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? That makes no sense. How can I return back into my mother's womb? I can't. I can't be born again. And look at what Jesus says. John 3, verse 12. If have I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he 
who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to himself. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nick, Nick, you call yourself a teacher of the law, of God's word, and you don't understand. If you don't understand earthly things, how are you going to understand heavenly things? But watch what happens next. Jesus refers back to what we just read. Verse 14, John 3. He says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must I, referring to himself, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. He just summarized the gospel, church, for Nicodemus, for you, and for me. He just summarized what Jesus came to do. And that is to offer us salvation. He came to give us the antidote for the sin in us. Because we are a panicking, desperate, sinful people. And some of us don't know it. And Jesus says, I am the only solution. I am the only cure for the curse. And then he says this. I think it's a verse that all of us have heard. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus understood why he came. See, again, thousands of years before in Numbers chapter 21, we just read, people have been bitten. And so... God tells Moses, make a fiery serpent. Make a fiery serpent. Put it on a banner. Put it on a pole. Lift it up. And whoever looks with a look of faith, with a look of understanding, whoever believes the serpent's venom will not kill them. They will live. Do you get it? Do you understand? What we just read was a foreshadowing of what was to come, of Jesus Christ being lifted up at the cross. And that whoever believes in his sacrifice will not die but have eternal life. That's the great news. That's the good news. That he, Christ, is the antidote for the venom, for the sin that's in our Jesus took our venom, Jesus took our sin and became the antidote by hanging on the cross. And again, anyone who puts his trust in the sacrifice will not die. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, a perfect sacrifice. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He also writes, Paul does in Romans 8.3, For God has done that what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He became the curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse. He was the antidote. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged 
upon the tree. I love how John Piper sums this up. He says this, in becoming like the snake, he was the embodiment, talking about Jesus, he was the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of our curse. And in becoming sin and curse for us, he took ours away. Here's my sermon point. Here's what I want you to realize. This is what we just read. Sin is my curse. Christ is my cure. The only hope, the only cure you and I have is Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do as we close today, guys. Right where you are, will you, will you close your eyes? Just close your eyes and just listen to the words I'm about to speak. Try to understand what we just read. See, every single one of us, church, has venom in our veins. This venom is sin. Every single one of us needs to understand, needs to comprehend that we are desperate, that we need a Savior. But before we realize we need a Savior, we have to realize that we're sinful. We have to realize that we're walking away from God. We have to have a desperation for our salvation. And all we are asked to do because of his love, because of his mercy, is to look at the cross with faith. To look at Jesus and believe. And when we do that in our hearts, the antidote goes into our veins. And we have eternal life with Jesus. We just read from Numbers. Notice that no matter how bad the Israelites were bitten, no matter how many times the Israelites were bitten, all they needed to do was to look at faith at the bronze serpent on the pole. I mentioned this church because I know a lot of you are sitting here today maybe thinking or saying to yourself, but you don't know what I've done, how sinful I am. If you only knew. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter. I'm here to tell you, Jesus loves you. I'm here to tell you to repent, be born again, and you can have hope in your desperation. We all need a Savior, church, and He is the cure. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that these words, your words today, penetrate our hearts. And I know that some of us sitting here today don't truly understand the gospel, the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, move in their hearts. Regenerate them. We need to understand that we're a sinful, desperate people that cannot rescue ourselves could not save ourselves. No matter how good we believe we are, we're never good enough. Help us understand that Jesus Christ is the one that was good enough for us. That he became sin for us. That he paid the penalty for us so that anyone who trusts in him could live. Father, I thank you. I praise you for your love, for your mercy, for your justice. More importantly, for your son Jesus. And in his name I pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 12, next week. You don't want to miss it.
I love you, church. God bless you. Have a great week.